Y'all know that for more than three years, I've done probably 90% of these uh, podcasts face-to-face, even all during COVID, and I pride myself on that. But this week, I was on a job down in uh, South Georgia. I was on the way down through Georgia, and it was just it was going to make me really late if I did this in the studio the way we had planned it. And so we did it on Zoom from the car. I was in Milledgeville, Georgia, which is an interesting place, plays an interesting role in my life. And I was on my way down to Albany, Georgia, where I where I grew up. And I had this job on Friday. And so I interviewed this woman from from the car. And I say that by way of saying that the audio is is not what I'd like it to be. But the substance of this is just amazing. And we hit it off so well. Um, this is Tamara Park this week, who's just a master at storytelling, primarily on film. And she's been a director. She's told stories all over the world. She's written a book about it. And now she's doing something a little bit different. She's doing some executive coaching. Um might be for her sanity as much as anything, but we talk a lot about storytelling. And storytelling was what I was doing for my job, my day job, down in South Georgia uh, through my business, Voice Locket, uh, voicelocket.com. I talked to a 90-year-old physician who's retired, and oh my God, we talked to him all day long. The memories just spilled out. It's amazing. It just fed my soul. Um, his daughter, who is from Charlotte, hired us to go down there and talk to him. The crew was great. The day was great. It was really unforgettable. Um, so I hope you'll check that out. If I can do it for your family, let me know. Voicelocket.com. Here's the show. Where might God be extending us a little hope, and how do we have eyes to see it and not miss it? This is In Her Words, a podcast from manlisting.com, featuring one man listening to the stories of real women in their own words. In Her Words, a conversation worth hearing, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, and welcome to In Her Words, the podcast. This week, Tamara Park, who I met years ago and really taught me a lot about storytelling, and I... I knew a certain kind of storytelling through journalism, but her tagline is make story your superpower. And story, particularly individual stories, are incredibly empowering. So Tamara Park has been doing that in a wide variety of ways, through writing a book, but mainly through directing for television for years now. And now she's doing executive coaching and leadership coaching and doing a little bit different. But it's really all about cultivating, honing, you know, clarifying the individual's story. So that is my jam. That's what I like to do. So I start talking to Tamara about her fascinating story. Where were you born? I was born in Fullerton, California in Orange County. For your mother, your number what of how many? I am first of two. Oh, and sister, brother? I have a brother 13 months younger. And 
Do you guys stay in touch? We do. We actually had uh, a family dinner, dinner last night. It was my father's birthday. So I got to see him and he, my brother called me this morning and, and wished me a happy birthday. So that's, grateful for that. That's wonderful. Did your mother tell you anything about that day 52 years ago about her pregnancy, labor and delivery with you? She was told I would be born in December. And so if you're noting, today is January the 26th. <laughs> so I was lightly a tardy baby. Um, I will just say well-baked and almost born on my father's birthday. Oh, that's wonderful. And it's wonderful you can still celebrate, you know, with him. That's great. I am grateful. When, when you were really little, like two or three years old, your parents would have described you how? Well, I mean, it's just, we're just talking, right? It's just you and me, Stuart, on this. No, (laughs) no, this is being recorded. What would you say? I'm being cheeky. I'm being cheeky. Well, as, as a kid, I was called Tammy Toes because I apparently I did not walk I was always on my tippy toes like ready to dance you know at the drop of a hat in fact I'll share this my um when people would ask me when I was really little what I wanted to be when I grew up I would say a grocery store dancer and I had visions of you know being doing swan like on you know aisle five by the the cookies um because I just wanted to dance everywhere. And I thought I I was scooped up. I was born in California, but I was raised on the East Coast. And I kept thinking somewhere in California, surely they have grocery store dancers and I can, you know, live out this great career. So I was, I was always on my tiptoes as a kid. If they do not have grocery store dancers in California, they should. This is, this is a concept. This is a high concept. Thank you. I I had a marketing mind as a kid. I just thought, you know, you've got to get your groceries. Like that's, you know, practicality of life. But why not get your culture at the same time? Why not be entertained at the same time? (laughs) And I I think that's gorgeous. I think that's the perfect idea. (laughs) Well, thank you. (laughs) What took you from California to the East Coast? Well, my... My dad made a really fascinating career switch. He was a chemical engineer, had a house. They had a house overlooking Disneyland and life was, you know, it looked like it was set. And then um, he had a, a profound encounter with, with faith. And um, my parents decided to move to Charlottesville. That was his alma mater to back to UVA and work with college students to do like social justice work. And it was the seventies. So that swiftly meant working with drug addicts. So they went from working with college students to getting an old frat house and helping, um, helping people transition um, that were struggling with, with drugs, helping them um, gain some life skills and get community and get, get sorted. So that was, that was the catalyst. How did he have such empathy? He grew up on a farm in New Jersey. His father worked in New York City, but would commute multiple hours a day because really wanted the kids to experience farm life. But, you know, they had 
little money and um, worked really hard. And so just, you know, I think feeling like you're all on the outs. And I think that can be a very human universal feeling, um, you know, in one form or another. But, I, you know, I think the kids, they, they experienced hard work and limited resources. And, and that can be tough when you're trying to figure out who you are as a youth. What about your mom? What was her role? Did she share the same faith? I mean, was she, she did. was she the trailing spouse or was she all in for this as well? She, yeah, she is a woman of adventure. So, I mean, they both, you know, love God deeply and love others. And that, you know, is marked there their journey. Um, but she is very relational, um, loves to just make people feel special in her presence. So she's really good at just creating a space and interactions where people do feel welcome. So, you know, how some of this played out, Stuart, as a kid, and this was really formative for my work as a, you know, a film and television director. Um, and other, you know, other aspects of my work. One of the ways that it played out when we moved to Charlotte is um, somehow we, every Sunday for multiple years, got to go to a local prison in Charlotte, in West Charlotte, and somehow check out a prisoner and take him to church and then out to lunch. And I spent so many Sundays on the edge of my seat um, just plying my new friends with with questions of like, where did you grow up? Tell me about your life. And, you know, often um, very different worlds than me. And they, you know, so many of these new friends who were incarcerated would just share about, you know, mistakes they made and lessons they learned and their desire to still make a difference. And Stuart, I was this, I was, you know, I was, on my toes as a kid, but I was on the edge of my seat as, you know, a youth because I was really a curious kid, but I was chubby and anxious and perfectionistic. And I needed to hear those stories of people in the midst of struggle who didn't get everything right, but still had, you know, an ability to contribute and dreams of making a difference. And so, you know, hearing their stories and growing up, um, in spaces where people who often were considered the marginalized became my wisdom teachers, you know, and I saw that also modeled from my parents that they, my parents engaged them as such, um, you know, that's really marked my own journey and set me um, on a course to bear witness to stories all around the world. I've got to work on five continents, you know, getting to hear really remarkable stories from child soldiers and survivors of sex trafficking to, you know, top level government officials and celebrities. So I've been so thankful for um, a heritage of just posturing, you know, with a posture we can learn from anyone. Everyone's got a gift. Um, to offer a story to tell, which I know you you deeply know and live out. <laughs> well, I admire you immensely, and I admire your process. Mm. Um, when when did you learn that you're not just a curious kid? You are a collector of stories. When did you 
sort of make that shift? What a beautiful question, Stuart. Thank you for that. That is, that's fascinating. Um, because I'm going to have to pause and actually think about where that shift. I, you know, I went from asking a lot of questions to saying, you know, as a youth saying, oh, I want to be the host of Good Morning America. And then when Christiane Amanpour came on the scene, I was like, oh, take me to war zones. I want to humanize them, you know, so like every, every young girl's dream, right? <laughs> you know, that was, that was probably a clue that I wasn't maybe the the most traditional of, of, of kids. But, you know, I think it's been growing into that reality. I, life has taken lots of different turns. I, I studied broadcast journalism and I lived um, in Europe and Belgium shortly after university and did producing and, and loved that. And I, my dad often told me growing up that that God often gives you a dream and lets it die only to have it resurrected in a more beautiful form. And I, in my early twenties, kind of let go of that dream of producing, reporting, being in front of the camera, all of that just felt like that wasn't ever going to be possible. And so I went in a direction of leadership. I ended up going actually to seminary and, and was a pastor on staff um, at a church in Charlotte. And so life took a very, you know, just a, a different turn. But I I loved hearing people's stories. When I was a pastor on staff, it was, you know, creating space to hear people share their stories and just see that transformational journey they were on and God work in the world. And then and I'm answering your question, I promise. But I Stuart, I went through a really hard year. I I called it my year of tears or my Van Gogh blue period, where you know I just cried on the way to work, would cry in the bathtub, cry at the grocery store. You know, I went from dancing in grocery stores to crying, which is not a good look or progression, I guess. But um I had a really hard year. And a, a, you know, part of that was realizing like I creative expression and and having s stories and being able to bear witness to that was so core to who I was that I really needed to be intentional to actually name that and create space for that. So I ended up taking a pilgrimage from Rome to Jerusalem and interviewed strangers on, you know, just which was this audacious, crazy, you know, dream to say, oh, I'm writing a book, which I'd never written a book before, didn't have a publisher at all, you know, it was, and then just to go up to strangers in places like Serbia or Syria, and, you know, ask, ask people to describe God, and people, man, they can amaze you, there's, it's really incredible, and as you know, and what you're, you're gifting me right now is um, creating space to ask questions and that attentive presence um people will tell you the most remarkable things and so people shared stories of their lives they invited me into their homes I um gave gave me incredible gifts 
I did end up accidentally staying in a cave and also dining with Syrian spies and a few other things along the way and got to write that book. But in that process was going, oh, okay, this is something deeply a part of who I am. It goes beyond me being a curious kid. Kid, so I think that was kind of the moment of like, oh, I am a collector of stories or a bear witness. You know, I want to bear witness to stories. And that's a, a sacred honor, isn't it? Mm-hmm. In, in journalism, it's seen as a craft, but as mm-hmm. you described it, and, and some people see it as an art, as an art form, mm-hmm. as you describe it, uh, I have heard it referred to as the ministry of listening. Mm. At, at what point did you realize that when you hear people, when you hold space for their stories and respect those stories without interruption, that you are serving them, serving yourself, and serving something greater simply by offering them the opportunity to be heard? Last, that I love these questions. These are beautiful questions. I, um, you know, it's been, I think, an, on, an ongoing discovery and, and living into that. You know, as I said, that even that pilgrimage, because it was six weeks of day in and day out, like every morning, I would just pray for these sacred encounters is how I framed it. And that I would, you know, just come, you know, bearing one question. Um, But, you know, I love what you were saying in terms of holding space or creating that space. I think so often we can move through our days without really acknowledging that we're being seen and heard and, and actually truly not acknowledging each other um, in a way that um, honors the totality of that person. I think often we can have these exchanges, interactions where there's an agenda, there's a transaction um, and a dynamic really shifts. And I, you know, I think when I recognized the power of that shifting of that dynamic was I spent almost two years interviewing survivors of sex trafficking in the U.S. and in Southeast Asia. And so I, I kept noticing something, you know, often at the beginning of the interview, and, and I mainly interviewed women that were survivors. I, I did interview some, some males, but um, they often started out the interview a little, you know, hunched over, thin voice, stone face. And then tell these extraordinary stories of, you know, surviving the worst indignities, you know, and, and I, I mean, I was just amazed at just the resilience of these women. And I, you know, invariably, and you'll understand this with your, all of your years of TV, I would scoot up my chair, mess up the shot, you know, but I couldn't help myself and lean in and go, do you know how brave you've been? Do you know how strong you are? And then I would see these shifts. Often their, you know, posture would strengthen, their voice would strengthen, face off, and sometimes they'd lean back and say, you know, you know how else I outsmarted that trafficker? And I'd be like, tell me. But I, I was so curious, like, what happens? Like, what is happening? I'm seeing shifts in their eyes, you know, their, you know, their presence, their personas 
changing. And so that set me on a journey to study the neuroscience of story. And so, you know, just as I feel so seen and heard by you right now, you know, we can release oxytocins and endorphins that have a bonding effect that give that effect of you like going, this is, there's something more to this encounter than just words flying back and forth. It, it actually calms our nervous system that fights anxiety and depression. And when we truly, you know, are seen and heard and then reflect on our story, we actually grow new neural pathways in our brain that help us move in positive, um, you know, positive ways forward. It, it can physiologically change our, the makeup, uh, you know, our makeup and our, our brain and how we not only process, but how we can actually make future decisions. And so recognizing like each of us have this power, like we don't have to buy it. We don't have to get a degree to have it. We can just simply show up to each other and be present and listen and honor each other's questions. You know, that's remarkable to me. I mean, I'm curious, like I'm pausing, like I'm, what is, when you hear that, and I know you live this, Stuart, but like, how does that impact you? Because that's, that's your craft. That's your skill. Well, you, we mentioned the craft of story, like journalism or narrative nonfiction, it's referred to. Then there's the art of story, uh, fiction or filmmaking or plays, drama. Then there's the ministry of story in which you actually hear someone's trauma. You hear their pain and you, and you uh, help them. That, that could be cognitive behavioral therapy or talk therapy. And then you've mentioned another way, which is it's just straight up healthy. Um, we are healthier human beings. Um, and what I'm wondering is, you know, once upon a time, you knew your doctor and your doctor wouldn't begin by asking, how are you, Tamara? He would begin by saying, how's your family? How's your mom and dad? How's business? And then he might say, you know, are you, are you sleeping okay? You know, and now there's no time for that. It's straight to what's wrong. So we don't get a chance to place our ails, uh, our aches and pains and ailments in any kind of context. And so when you talk about the neuroscience of storytelling, um, you're, you're really talking about the ability to provide context for a relationship as opposed to a mere transaction. So what did you learn about the neuroscience of us telling one another stories, whether it's at the diner or at the doctors or at the lawyers for that matter, um, that really sort of surprised or enlightened you? What can you share about the actual science of it? Yes, I, you know, I do, I, you know, I am amazed, you know, just that we do release these healing hormones that by creating, you know, that the term is used in many circles or in different circles of psychological safety. But when someone feels 
really um, seen and heard and not threatened, then there's a coming home to ourselves, you know, and there's a coming home home to the other person that, you know, really enables us to access our most creative and resourceful selves, you know, and that sense of I can be vulnerable, I can let my guard down, and I can be safe, you know, opens up, you know, our, I, I think this abundance in our thinking, it opens up a positivity, as I said, it actually calms our nervous system and um, enables us to just where there can be anxiety or where there can be depression, there's a calming, a stealing of, of ourselves in that, in a, you know, in a physiological way that, you know, to me is, is remarkable, is remarkable. And that's, you know, I saw that and as I said, I, I became so curious in ob- observing this in my interviews and, and with, you know, refugees and with others who've experienced complex trauma, but to see, to start to read the science that what I was sensing intuitively and just even that, that sense of bond, you know, I would, I, I, I felt like, and I've interviewed hundreds and hundreds of people around around the globe, but I do feel like my, my heart holds all of these stories. And I was wondering, why do I feel so bonded? I could have, you know, a conversation, you know, 30 or 40 minutes and creating space with someone and, and feel like I can remember that conversation, like an, you know, in high definition detail. And, you know, I could spend hours doing something else, you know, that, you know, today and completely it's a kind of a blurry compressed, you know, memory. And so I think that there's, and so why I mentioned that is there was something physiologically happening in our bodies in that exchange. There was something happening in our minds to give such that that was imprinted on my memory in such a distinct way and that's you know that is that process of story we remember story and when we bear witness to each other's stories we have a capacity to hold that to to remember that even when and this is some fascinating science on this front Stuart is even when you hear a story of someone else doing something good uh, some someone else being generous you've got the same receptors in your brain lighting up as if you did that, as if you, you know, so our bodies can even benefit from hearing stories of people's courage or people's generosity. You know, it's, it's as if our body is metabolizing that action, you know, and so there's, as I said, to me, it's, it's just this divine magic that, you know, that happens that now there's science behind it. I hear a lot of people say, do good and don't get caught. So a lot of people will do things and then not want to share what they've done. They want to do it anonymously. Uh, 
And I, I appreciate the humility behind that. But what I've heard is if someone drops a bag of groceries and someone else rushes up, helps them collect it and helps them to their car, um, that the, the good brain chemicals you're talking about, the oxytocin or dopamine or serotonin, those chemicals go up in the person who received the help, in the person who gave the help, and in anyone around who witnessed the person giving help to someone in need. Even if it's captured on camera or the story is told, and it is anonymous, you won't believe what I saw today. There was someone who really, really needed help and someone else reached out. And so I say sometimes it's good to, to let people see you doing something for someone else because it also benefits them. It's not just you. Um, and, you know, I know people want to remain anonymous, but it, it really benefits everyone. It is a win-win-win. In, in terms of the good, the good brain drugs. Exactly. Dr. Paul Zak has, has done really beautiful research on this and um, has just captured people's um, release of oxytocin when they watch videos of, of generosity, um, that that actually then makes them more generous. So, you know, these stories matter, they matter. And this is a healing capacity. Um, which comes from terrible wounds. You're not exactly a correspondent on the red, uh, <laughs> on the on the red uh, rug in front of the Oscars. You're not exactly asking the starlets who are you wearing on Entertainment Tonight when you're talking to war refugees, famine refugees, people who were sex trafficked. These people have been profoundly traumatized and you're talking to them. Um, how is it helpful to them uh, not re-traumatizing? Yes, that's, that's a great question, Stuart, both of those. And I've done a lot of, you know, a lot of thinking, research, exploring how to actually use story, video storytelling is my, you know, my particular craft. My background is a, is a director. Uh, how to use, you know, storytelling as a force of healing and growth, not as an exploitation. And so I'm, I'm very passionate about the best practices. So one of the things is I always make sure that it's a collaborative effort. Whenever I'm working with someone to tell their story, it's their ultimate agency. Like they've got to, they, so many things have been stripped of them. They've got to have, you know, that power in being able to tell, tell their story. So first of all, I make sure that it's collaborative and that they have a desire to tell their story. What I found when people have experienced profound challenges and struggle, really the core motivation that they they have to share their story is to help other people, which I'm always so inspired and really, you know, amazed at. And I believe in this economy of redemption. And so that's why I'm even willing to ask them to tell their story is I think that, you know, for me, it's faith animates this belief, but I believe it's a universal belief that 
there's this capacity for really beautiful, good things to come from really hard things because it can, um, it, it can bolster other people's courage. And so, you know, I, I work with them to tell their story in a way that they can see that their story can inspire, can inform, can educate, um, can offer a gift to to others and that their struggle can be, you know, in some ways redeemed or offered um, in a way that that has, you know, great, great value. Um, so a key, a couple of key things in terms of having people who've had complex trouble, trauma or hard things happen, share their story, is I make sure not only that they can name the the challenges that they've experienced, but that they can articulate the growth that they've gained. If they can't articulate how they've actually grown and healed from this experience, then I know they're not ready. Like they may want to tell me their story, but their story isn't ready for public. Like they, you know, they're still in a vulnerable position. So that's, that's really critical. And that's also helpful for my own heart, you know, is when people can talk about how they're growing or how they've grown and healed, there's a bit of like relief that comes from my, you know, because I, you know, that I don't have to um, rescue them or, you know, um, you know, and I've, you know, I've certainly interviewed people who are still in the throes of they're still refugees are still in the throes of challenges, but they have a vision of being able to move forward in their life. And they have a drive for others to join them in that vision. Um, So that's one thing on a personal level, I have to have laughter. Like I, oh my gosh, when I was doing sex trafficking, I don't know how many like rounds of Seinfeld I watched how many like you know like I I just have to have a lot of like comedy lightness laughter therapy um and then you know good friends like I have this deep belief that community creates capacity and so you know especially as I'm in when I enter into hard more emotionally charged projects you know I I have to lean on my community all the more in talking to, in local television news, talk to a lot of people who have had murder in their families. Mm. And uh, it's, it's not a podcast. It's not a, it's not a Netflix series. It's, um, it's profoundly wounding. It can destroy people for their entire lives. Yeah. Um, how do you... Uh, protect yourself against having uh, PTSD experience their own trauma uh, or becoming callous, uh, developing such a thick skin that you can't really empathize or feel with these people. How do you um, protect yourself? Yeah, I, you know, and directing is only one, one thing I do. So I have all, you know, so I'm not immersed. And, um, you know, so there is, there's certainly an intensity when you're in that, you know, in those kind of serious gut wrenching 
um, stories and just conversations with people. I, you know, what animates, what animates my, my desire to tell stories is to really, you know, I see it as a way of loving my neighbor and can I really see the dignity and, um, you know, the specific beauty, divinity in this, in this other person. And if I, if I'm not in the place, if I, you know, and I've definitely gone through my own therapy and well, you know, there's, I'm sure there will be more of that to come as well. If I'm, if I don't have abundant resourcefulness in myself to, to be able to give and see that, then I know I'm not in a place to take on those kind of stories. Mm-hmm. You're smart enough about yourself. You've learned about yourself. Well, yeah. And sometimes like really awkwardly and hardly I've, you know, I've, I've had my, you know, I've, I've got addicted to work in my late twenties and you know, where affirmation was like oxygen and that was not pretty. And I just, you know, like, I don't want to, um, you know, I don't want to do harm. And so, you know, part of my work now is, is executive or transformational coaching and, and consulting and training. And I realized if I, I have to pay attention to my, you know, my self-saboteurs, um, cause the way that we show up to ourselves is contagious to others. So if I'm in perfectionist mode or I'm packing my schedule, I'm harried, I'm overwhelmed, whatever. If I try, I can't create a space, um, that is peaceful and non-judgmental and curious and gracious. If, you know, if I'm doing the opposite to myself in that moment, does that make sense? Yes. Um, you've done a variety of things over the years and you're doing this transformational and executive coaching. Now, what is your process for discerning at this season of life? Um, what you should be doing. People have referred to that um, as everything from listening to the muse to uh, discerning God's will to just, you know, straight up tactical or strategic, you know, planning for a portion of life, you know. Um, But as a person of faith, you know, this is a great mystery to me as to what people's processes are for discerning which talent they are to make use of at this part of their lives. So how did you go about discerning now I should be a transformational coach? I mean, I'm guessing there was not a burning bush or an angel who appeared in your bedroom, but I don't know that for sure. So what what happened? What's your process? Oh, these are such great questions. Such great questions. So, you know, last year at this very time, I, I was, I had a, I co-founded a media tech start startup and, you know, to do a tech startup in the middle of a pandemic is not for the faint of heart. And we had beautiful, beautiful visions and some, you know, really exhilarating, so close to big moments of, um, you know, of getting major deals and tech built and all of that. And, um, and really struggled. And so I, I showed up January 
2022 with some really big questions going, I am exhausted. I'm depleted. I, you know, haven't essentially haven't been paying myself in the startup of at moments felt, you know, really isolated and alone and started asking and had a great co-founder and, and, and board chair that just said, why don't you pause and why don't you ask some bigger questions? And, um, and then my mom almost died. She was hospitalized. You know, we, I thought I was saying goodbye to her. We had multiple moments where we really thought we were going to lose her. And, and so that, you know, I just thought I, I need to ask those bigger questions of, what do I desire? What do I need? And how can I most contribute in the season? And so I ended up hiring my own coach, you know, to, to help me navigate through those questions and actually chase down this hunch that, you know, ex- executive coaching or transformational coaching was something I was curious about. So it was a process of, you know, taking questions to, to really good people, you know, getting getting a tribe around those, those questions, doing a lot of research. I found a really fabulous um, executive coaching academy in, in London. And, um, but I love what you, how you framed that question, Stuart, of, of what is it you're called to in this season? And I really, I love that. And I love offering that question to other people because our, our journeys are journeys, aren't they? And I think, you know, gone is the day where someone has, you know, one career, you know, I think when I was growing up in college, it was seven careers. I remember interviewing a futurist a couple of years ago, and he said, the average person now will have 40 big projects or gigs in their career. So it's a question that I I believe we have to ask ourselves. And I think it's, it's great to ask each other. That question again and again in this season, you know, and I, I'm working on this, um, this course for with business architects, but I'm designing something on the five most important conversations of your career, how to have the five most important conversations of your career. And the first one is your purpose conversation. And, and that conversation starts with yourself, you know, and I think, We've got to continue to pause and kind of check in with ourselves and check in with our purpose. Is this, you know, are we awake in our life? Are we, is this the, you know, the life, the work that we want to do in the season? What are the other four? <laughs> well, so the first one, your, your why, you know, and then the second one is your value. What is the value that you offer to the world and how do you, how do you share it with like your boss if you're working, you know, let's say at a Bank of America, or Wells Fargo, or another company in our city? You know, how do you share it to the C-suite if you're having those conversations? How do you share it to those that you work with, and how do you share it to those you lead? And then the third one is how do you how do you pitch great ideas? How do you pitch your strategies? Um, the fourth one is how do you have how do you have um, conversations about conflict that bring connection and not destruction, you know? And then thirdly, or I mean, fifthly, how do you um, celebrate and how do you have conversations that really 
socialized success and in not and and doing it like what you were saying about that generosity how do you celebrate your team's wins in a way that inspires versus just like is doing it to one up or boast i have gone from from one therapist to another because i had a therapist retire and i've gone from one coach to another because you need different coaches for different kinds of things. Right. What's the difference between a therapist and a coach? And how do you choose a coach? You said you found one. Uh, what do you ask yourself? How do you know if it's a good fit? Oh, those are great questions. And yes, there's very clear boundaries between, you know, myself as a coach, I'm not a therapist. Uh, a couple of... <clears throat> key guardrails around that is, you know, I'm coming alongside people. I don't, I don't do the work, um, but I'm, you know, coming alongside and helping, um, inviting you to become, you know, just knowing that you've got a partner on the journey to, to access your own creative resourcefulness and, and believing that you've got wisdom and intuition and, and insights. It's just, you know, really creating that space and hopefully asking the right questions and noticing and paying attention. Um, and I, I love a coach friend of mine says she's not um, an archaeologist, she's an architect. So often therapists are dealing with the past and coaches are helping you design a future. We're now in an era where we are saying, bring your whole self to work, which I think there's a lot of, a lot of value in recognizing that we are holistic beings. And so your a hard conversation that you had with a friend or a family member that's affected your sleep that has you <laughs> going, you know, um, a little bit more anxious and exhausted at work that, you know, those all um, are part of who you are as you walk through that, you know, walk through the door of um, your office. And yet at the same time, um, who's equipped for what, you know? And so uh, I think the workplace is wrestling with how do we honor this reality and how do, you know, what can we, what can we offer? And especially I think leaders are asking, you know, like, and, you know, and hopefully they're asking those questions, knowing what they can, what they can bring, you know, by even creating space of listening or asking questions and yet at the same time knowing their limits and what they can't bring, um, you know, so that there's a dance there. In terms of finding a coach, chemistry, I think is really important. You know, it's, um, it is really valuable to know that that it's, it's a process. And if you don't feel like you can be yourself or safe or connected with um, you know, with one coach, then, you know, it's very valid to, to explore and find another one. Um, so, you know, I think the fit of like, just asking each other what, what, how you work and what you want to get out of, out of a coaching journey is, um, you know, that's a part of the process. So that's, that's good. Mm -hmm. You are also a deeply spiritual person and a person of faith. What does your practice of prayer and meditation of speaking requests and 
of listening for the answers to those requests for intuition or decision making. Take your tech tech startup job. What what's a for instance in which you made an ask and you feel like you got an answer? Hmm. You know, there's this kind of wild story that's coming to mind right now. I'm just trying to think if I this is this is the most um probably the most profound and dramatic story that I experienced and I'm curious if it'll translate. Um but you know I, I will say I'll share this story in a moment. I will say, you know, my my relationship with God, and that's how I would frame it, is is a really it's it's in relational terms, is um you know, so often it's morning reading scripture, maybe reading something else. I have an app called Pray As You Go where lovely British people, often monks, will read scripture. And, and it's, somehow God sounds better with a British accent. But um, I, you know, very, very simple rhythms that I probably have read scripture, prayed, and journaled almost every day since I was 14. So there's this, there's this embedded rhythm. And then really feeling like I connect most with, with God um, in nature and conversations with others. You know, these very um, uncinematic moments, but just really natural day to day. And really... I've committed myself to trying to hear the voice of love, the voice of God and God's love for me in a sense of that my, the most distinct thing about my identity, my very being is that I'm beloved. I'm beloved by the God of the universe. And so how do I engage people knowing that they're beloved and, and move out of that, that generosity of, of identity and presence. Um, but in terms of a story that's coming to mind, I will, I'll try to make this brief. I was in the midst of a really hard job change. I had worked for a network. It had been my dream job. I traveled the world getting to pitch television shows. I had never even done television. And then I pitched a television series and got to trek from Mozambique to Morocco. So I had like had this really kind of remarkable, crazy, fabulous job with this network that was a social justice network that was wanting to do good in the world. So like amazing, travel the world, doing great stories with an intention of doing good in the world. And then our our network got bought by a big film company all about in LA. They took all of our content, but didn't take us producers. Um, so here I was like, you know, was I... Maybe I was right at 40. I was early 40s, never married, longed to be married, to be a mom. My dream job just dissipated. And I decided to go on this unemployment tour in Africa and um, and Europe. And I went to South Africa, which I'm going to be there in two weeks um, right from now. Um, but I was there with two girlfriends and we decided that we would just 
take time to pray for God, pray for each other, just to try to sense God's love for one another. We were all in the midst of transitions and all of that. And we were on a, in a vineyard and there was in Cape town, which is one of the most beautiful places on the planet in wine country. And there was these purple flowers and my friend prayed and just said, I just sense like that God's gonna like has so much for you that you have, there's hope of marriage. There's hope of you telling your stories and that every time you see purple flowers that they should, that they're an invitation for hope. And I was like, Oh, that's lovely. You know? And then it was as if everywhere I went was covered with purple flowers, like purple flowers growing out of like cement on, you know, walkways and at the top of this big mountain table mountain and all of that. So just crazy little, you know, kind of like kisses from the God of the universe saying, I see you, I got you. Um, And then I finally, I finally found a job that I really loved and um, kind of took a risk. It was between one in Colorado and one in potentially one in London that was going to be really glamorous and it was not what I needed. I just come off of a couple of years of that sex trafficking and I knew I needed something um, gentle. And so I, I told the job that I was going to, I had an, um, an interview with, I was going to shore up this one last interview with this other offer, you know, offer the, the London offer and that they would, I would give them a response to the job on Friday, but they had made the offer for me. Well, I decided I was going to take Colorado. I was going to play. I was going to choose rest. Um, and I told the London potential that I was taking my hat off the ring. And the Colorado one said, hey, we thought you were going to go for the international job. And so we're rescinding the offer. And suddenly I said goodbye to the potential London one and the Colorado one suddenly was gone. And here I am early forties, no job, no safety net. And, you know, and going, what, you know, God, what am I supposed to do? And I gathered some friends at church and they were praying for me. And one friend said, as I'm praying for you, I have no idea what this means, but I see this field of purple flowers. And I think, you know, like God's just telling you to hope. And I was like, everybody was like, oh, that's beautiful. And I just was in tears because this guy had no idea what it meant. And it ended up the next week, they offered me the job again. They said, hey, we got it wrong. Sorry, here's the job. And then where I moved, it ended up being the capital of lavender flowers, Fort Collins. So I just share this crazy story because often God works in super subtle ways in my life. Like, you know, like you, it's hard to even kind of discern between my idea and God's idea. And then there's these little moments where I think if you pay attention, there's these little invitations where God's saying, I see you and I'm going to blow you away. And it looks like you're, you just had the biggest disaster of your career or whatever your divorce or whatever it is. And there's these little moments of like, no, I'm going to give you an invitation to hope. And, and so I think that's a part of all of our journeys is trying to pay attention to 
where might God be extending us a little hope and how do we have eyes to see it and not miss it? That was a long story, Stuart. I don't know if that made sense. <laughs> it makes perfect sense. It's beautiful. Mm. Um, if we got struck by lightning today and the only thing that survived is this little piece of digital audio, what is your legacy? My legacy. Oh, you asked these big, beautiful questions. Well, you know, my, my prayer for multiple years now, every day has been God expand my capacity to love and be loved. And that is an audacious and a very simple little prayer. But, you know, my hope is that the people that I've encountered, that they've felt that I'm actually for them and love them. And that a part of that exchange has been a sense of like, oh, God sees them. Somebody sees me. Uh, and that, you know, if, if someone's felt that in my presence, then whew, I'm grateful. Tamara Park, you're so wonderful. You're so good to do this. Oh. This was richly, an absolute pleasure. Richly blessed to, to have met you. And you got to promise me that we can have lunch again, maybe on the other side of South Africa, and you can teach me more about storytelling. Well, Stuart, I would love it. And I just want to say thank you for creating space for me. Thank you for your gorgeous questions. I feel so honored. Well, I'm, I'm a student. I'm a student. I'm trying to learn. We, I'm trying to learn. We all are. We all are, aren't we? So. Yes. Well done. Um, Thank you, sir. Tamara sent me texts and emails afterwards saying it was such a joy to be on this podcast. Thanks for your beautiful questions and generous listening. And may you experience great richness in this purposeful project. Wow. Wow. From your lips to God's ears, thank you, Tamara Park. I appreciate you. In Her Words is a production of the Queen City Podcast Network in cooperation with Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative, Rachel Clapp Miller and Roshonda Pratt are developmental producers. Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and take a moment to rate and review. It really helps others find us. If you love us, go to our Patreon page at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. A small investment makes a big difference in lifting up the voices of women. A huge shout out and thank you to everyone. And I do mean everyone in whatever way, uh, who has supported manlistening.com, In Her Words, the podcast, and now voicelocket.com. God bless you. Thank you for your support. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Thanks so much.